this is Castle One. Great officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Welcome back, podcast listeners, to the start of this season three. Can you believe it? 39 editions in, almost 50 hours of quality podcast listening. And we're back more energized than ever to bring you in-depth stories from the heart of our sports. And I can promise you, we have lots of fascinating guests lined up over the coming months. It's great to have you along. To celebrate the new season, we thought we'd ramp up the authenticity and introduce this edition from out on the Solent. It's a pretty still day, but I'm at the helm of a lovely little classic, making my way west towards the Needles. It's been a windy and cold few weeks here in Cowes, but right now, while you can hear it, there is a stillness, a calm about, and it's great to be out here. We've been back from the America's Cup in Auckland just over a month now, and I wanted to thank you all for your support and kind words whilst we were there. It was a real privilege for both of us to work on such a fascinating cup, especially in the current global travel scenario and with so many people unable to travel to Auckland to support their team. And we were delighted with your Cup podcast support. The America's Cup editions were through the roof popular, and we really hoped they added something to your viewing experience. If you're mourning the drama of AC36, then fear not. This edition, I promise, will take you right back. Before we introduce this month's guest, I want to run something by you all. I want to know what you think. Tim and I adore this podcast. There's a lot of care, a lot of work that goes into every month, but we do spend an increasing amount of time and a not inconsiderable amount of money producing these pods. And thanks to you, we've now reached pretty impressive listener numbers, which is great. But the podcast landscape is changing. The more popular platforms are introducing subscription models. It now costs us to appear on some of these platforms. With the massive rise in popularity of podcasts generally, there's a real interest in advertising around well-supported pods. But for us, we're reluctant. We work hard on the pod and don't want that intimate listener experience. We try to create being interrupted by ad spots. If we can, we'd like to keep the podcast ad-free but it's definitely an option. We're also reluctant to head down the subscription route, now made so much easier as the big players like Apple introduce subscription into their podcasting platforms. So after much discussion, we're going to continue the ad-free, non-subscription, fully immersive podcast experience, but we'd like your support. We're going to ask you, the listener, the end user of our work, if you can, to join us on the ride. We've looked at all the popular monthly contribution options. We don't like that, so we've opted for the simplest option we could find. It's dead simple. You go online, head over to buymeacoffee.com. Yep, you heard me, buymeacoffee.com, then forward slash sailing podcast. And you can contribute as much or as little as you like, much like Netflix, digital TV, or however else you watch and listen, but you decide the level of support. Have a think about it. It's not been an easy decision. The quality of the podcast to us is key, but to help us put in the time, we'd like your support. Our sport is so diverse. It's filled with passionate, fascinating people, and we love bringing you these stories. So if you're enjoying what we do, it's super simple to help keep the podcast rolling. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get on with it. Our guest this month is truly one of my favorite people to interview. And I've interviewed him a lot. I feel like I've shared his career highs and lows over the past two decades, and he always delivers what we need. By now, I'd say we're friends. He certainly knows that I know just what it all means to him. 
The skipper of American magic, Terry Hutchinson, truly wears his heart on his sleeve. In part two, Terry is brutally honest about the 36th America's Cup. And if you followed the cup, you'll know what's coming. In a harrowing account, he relives that capsize. Personally, being trapped underwater and all that followed. Watching everything he and his team had worked so hard to create nearly sink to the bottom of the Haraki Gulf. It's an emotional tale. In this part though, part one, we learn about Terry's early cup experiences and just how he got so good. In some ways, Terry seems quite complex, renowned as an absolutely ruthless and talented tactician who leaves little on the racetrack. But on land, he's fiercely loyal to his band of brothers and emotional about the responsibility he carries for his owners, his team and his family. We were in some ways reluctant to record this podcast when we did, waiting as long as we could in Auckland before meeting up. You'll hear it often in his voice. Six weeks after being knocked out, Terry is still going to work, still wearing his uniform, still fighting for the future of his team. It's all still very raw. You'll hear that. That's the passion of the man. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Terry Hutchinson. I don't shave if we're having a good regatta. It's one of my idiosyncrasies. I was sitting in my religion class at St. Mary's High School and I thought, there's a big race going on, I need to go and watch this. I can imagine having to unbolt the thing after 132 years, that was not easy. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Terry. We're here at the American Magic team base in Auckland, just a few days before the America's Cup match mm. kicks off. I was keen to catch you before the craziness resumes. I suspect right now, just a few weeks from being eliminated from the Cup, the last thing you might want to do is talk about yourself for 90 minutes. So a massive <laughs> thanks for making it yeah. happen. <laughs> so only because it's you, Shirley. Well, <laughs> I'm really grateful and I, I'm sure it's going to be great. I mean, I did wonder, Terry, if you've ever listened to any of the pods, if you actually know what you're in for. Um, I've listened to some of them, but I, I haven't managed my way all the way through. <laughs> and uh, as always, we're incredibly appreciative of the great work that you've done. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I have had the benefit of watching some of the other, you know, your previous shows that you've always done. And so it's an honor to be here. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because we may not have podcast history, Terry, but we do have some history. Yes, we have main cell history. Yes. And every time I look at that smallish scar <laughs> on your chin, I'm remembered, uh, you know, I'm reminded of a rather ill thought out interview yeah. location and can't help but feel a bit responsible. Yeah. Tell our listeners how that battle wound came about. Yes. Well, it's, uh, it's quite a unique battle wound. And um, I think we met in Istanbul, Turkey at an Extreme 40 regatta where you were with, um, with us and the Artemis Racing. And, and you know, that whole circuit was incredible. And we had a day of racing where we actually, we'd sailed quite well. And you said, you know, I really would like to do this. You know, I want to see, you know, we want to get you to do this very authentic um, straight blade shave on your face with a local um, barber in Istanbul. And I said, to, I said, you know, Cheryl, I don't shave if we're having a good regatta. It's one of my, one of my um, little idiosyncrasies of good or bad luck. And you're like, and in typical Shirley fashion, you convinced me to do it, so I did it. So I'm lying in the chair. Um, the gentleman does the uh, straight blade, uh, gets my face nice and hot, is going through his process, and about three quarters of the way through it, nicks my chin. Apparently, pretty deep because I, I bled like a stuck pig. And, uh, and then he grabbed his little thing of wax and covered it up really quickly. And I do think the next day we went out and had an absolute shocker. Although we did manage, uh, only through the fault of Ian Williams, we did manage to win the regatta in the last race. So I'll bring that up a little bit yeah. later. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been uh, some good luck there. I suppose as, as someone who, who doesn't shave their chin, I didn't realize that I couldn't actually ask you a question, that you couldn't talk whilst being <laughs> shaved. So... Um, Learned a lot, but, yeah. but every time I look at you, I'm reminded of, of that moment. Mm. Um, Terry, we're 
We're sitting here in the team base, as mm. I said. What was the hospitality unit? Much of the base now, it, it's all packed up, ready to go somewhere. It does feel a little bit weird, like like the big top without the circus. Yeah. We're going to talk much more about the cup later, Terry, but I wondered how Terry Hutchinson is doing, how hard a, mm. a few weeks it's been for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been, you know, you you run the full gamut of emotion still. And the, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate to have support of family, have support of great principles, have support of team around us. You know, you really learn the true meaning of that word uh, when you go through moments like this in the, um, in your sporting career. And sitting here, it's been, uh, the last four weeks have really been enlightening because we're, we've been conducting a pretty thorough uh, team debrief process and the kind of the methodology that we chose was uh, an anonymous survey uh, to the entire team which has been really well received and and thoughtful and thorough and critical which it needed to be um, so that's one part of the process the other part of the process is one-on-one -on -one interviews with team members that I've conducted and just really spending time talking uh, no set agenda, no set questions, just letting the conversations flow. And that's ranged anywhere from one hour to, to three and a half or four hours with each team member. But you, you roll through, uh, it's taken me literally the entire month of February and into, into March to get through about 60 of those. And that's uh, once you can remove a little bit of the emotion from what happened, um, the only thing that ends up happening there is you learn about what team members think that we could do better, uh, what we didn't do well, um, how we can, if we're given the opportunity for AC 37 and an AC 75, how we go about winning that regatta. And I think the one thing that, that I was a bit probably too optimistic at the start of this program is really underestimating the strength of, we knew the teams around us were good. Um, and you know, I, I think really the, the defender <clears throat> probably of all the teams has you know, really in a smart way um, managed their resource and also developed in a way that we didn't consider developing. You know, and, and some of that is just no more complicated than the lack of infrastructure. You know, our pathway to define and then to Patriot started with a mule. Um, and you'd have to think that the other team's pathways to their development was through simulation and, and uh, high quality uh, design tools in, in that regard. And so for us, it's um, probably the, one of the things that's come out of those debriefs is, you know, gaining the perspective of looking at it in a different way and trying to, trying to capture all the things that we did well, which we did, a, you know, we did a lot well. And that's the other thing that comes out to the person. Um, <clears throat> nobody has said we're not sailing next week um, for no other reason other than what happened. You know, we capsized the boat and put a hole in it and put ourselves under insurmountable pressure to just get the boat back out on the water. So the mistake would be, though, to think that that's the only reason that we're not racing next week. You can look at it in isolation and go, yep, that's it. But... I don't believe that, and I didn't believe it prior to the crash, and I don't believe it sitting here today. You know, you can always see that there's areas that you can be better, and there are a lot of areas that we could be better, and we will be better, but that doesn't overshadow either what we did really well. We're going to talk about American Magic later on in the interview, but it's interesting, Terry, you're still very much on I mean, you didn't answer my question. I didn't. I just wanted to know. <laughs> I wanted to know how. Oh, how, how I'm you doing? Were. It's, yeah. It's tough, isn't it, when yeah. something ends like this? How's How's Terry uh, Hutchinson? I can't stop. So I get up and I go to work, and I'm thinking about AC 37. I'm, you know, and probably partly I can't stop because it's still too close. So. <laughs> We'll come back to okay. all of that. Let's start by I finding out. <laughs> Let's start by finding out, you know, a bit more about the aspiring young Terry Hutchinson. I mean, where did it all begin? What was the young Terry like? Describe that young lad. <laughs> um, describe that young person. 
pig-headed, um, incredibly driven without any real discipline. You know, not you know always seeing what what I wanted, but no real mechanism to understand how to get there, or how to uh, go about the process of winning. Um, probably arrogant, you know. The uh, the great Angus Phillips one time wrote that I was a garrulous, barrel-chested brawler, and I had to go to the dictionary and lift, look up half those words. <laughs> and uh, and so it probably uh, you know defines the the younger side. And yet you know I was always incredibly competitive when it came to the sailing side. I've heard a story. I think you I think just it, stories. It, <laughs> well, I think um, I think it came from you. You know, you you were skipping school to go and watch yeah. the cup when it was in yeah. Newport. What do you remember of that? Yeah. Well, there was this great uh, sailors hangout in Annapolis called Marmaduke's Pub that um, is no longer in existence. And the owner of the of the pub was a J twenty four sailor named Bill Heim, and I was the only young person that they would let in the bar because our family had a J24 and that's what we grew up on um, kind of my teen years racing between that and the 420s. And so on the day that in December that Dennis um, in race seven, I left high school. I was sitting in my religion class at St. Mary's High School and I thought there's a big race going on. I need to go and watch this. And uh, so I walked out of my, uh, I asked my teacher if I could go and you know <laughs> go to the bathroom and I just Kept walking and and walked down to Marmaduke's there in Eastport and saddled up on the corner of the bar and watched uh, watched Dennis you know go from winning that race in brilliant fashion to um, to not winning and uh, you know after the race was over school was still going on and so I I walked back into school I, it wasn't quite going on but I I walked back and you know lo and behold everybody was wondering where I was and uh, my mom was there wondering. What did you do? It's <laughs> like, well, you know, race seven of the America's Cup is going. I had to go watch this, so that's what I did. Just seemed like the thing to do at the time. I mean, it was it must have been you know a terrible moment in the sailing community in the states. You know, when the New York Yacht Club had to unbolt the cup yeah. from the trophy room and, and hand it to the Australian. Yeah, oh, I can't think of anything harder to do. You know, I think being in the game and in the sport in the manner that we have been over really the last 20 years and and having really only once been in the situation in the match to to experience it all the way through i can't imagine uh how hard that would have been and um and yeah i mean that's and having had the opportunity and perspective to sail uh with tom and work for Dennis, but Tom in particular, who is a tactician and, you know, is, is without question, you know, the, a great friend and mentor, but, you know, having won the cup, having lost the cup, having won the cup, um, you know, he tells the story of there was everything they were doing on that last day just felt right. And so when they split, it was like, yeah, you know, we've been getting every single one, right. And so this is not that big of a deal. And they were, as he pointed it out too, they were just that annoying distance ahead that they kind of had to sail their own race. And um, we all know Newport in the fall can be a little bit tricky and in the direction they were sailing in, it was tricky and yeah, it all. But listening to him tell the story, it's like he's, you know, he is absolutely right there in the moment, which is just awesome. But that's, you know, that's probably what the America's Cup does to us. So I can imagine having to unbolt the thing after 132 years, that was not easy. You always remember your losses. Yeah. <laughs> Much yeah. more vividly. Yeah, no, than... that's the uh, unfortunate thing about losing. <laughs> As you know, Terry, I'm working here in the commentary box with Kenny Reed, who's a touch older than you. And I asked him what he could remember of the young Terry Hutchinson when he first hit the scene. He used the words driven, talented. I mean, you were twice College Sailor of the Year. And he alluded to a few disagreements on the water. Looking back, how accurate is that? Yeah. He's being incredibly polite. <laughs> and uh, definitely some arguments. I would say that that summarization is probably uh, spot on. And, 
you know, there's a couple things that Kenny probably doesn't know that I'll, uh, I'll share. Um, you know, as you rightfully point out, he's seven or eight years older than I am. And so when I was coming up through college and really in, in the, um, you know, kind of 16, 17, 18, you know, Kenny was, was out of college and kind of developing his skills in the J24 and, and really, uh, becoming one of the, you know, best sailors in the world through that. But because he was such a great college sailor and was evolving outwards, um, you know, he was an easy role model. So my laser two at the U.S. Youth Championships shared the same sail number that his J24 did. <laughs> and I doubt he knows that, but that's a, that's a, uh, a little fact. Um, but when you race against somebody as good as him, um, much in the same way that when you race against people around this harbor, you always knew that when you had the opportunity to beat them in a race, um, that you were doing something well. And the harder he beat, beat on us, um, the better it made us. And that was just, you know, there was always this uh, component of, of he, he probably could sense that there were other, other people coming and, and he was always going to make sure he beat them down as hard as he possibly could to remind them that uh, hard work was, was never going to, uh, you were always going to have to work hard if you wanted to get races off of them. And uh, so that was the approach that he, he followed. Very much a hockey mentality, racing against Kenny. He said, he said there was never really fisticuffs, but it came close. Ah, uh, that's a stretch. He's much taller than I am. <laughs> but he, you know, he's a great sailor. And he's you know, having the opportunity to uh, work with him in Stars and Stripes and work with, you know, um, various other helmsmen. I mean, Kenny's incredibly talented. And, and he was... It, you know, it's just for whatever reason he didn't uh, go as hard into the America's Cup um, as some of us some of us have. But you know, I learned more uh, racing against him about having mental toughness. And if you were ever going to beat a competitor, like truly gain the upper upper hand on them, you needed to do a lot of things well on the water, and then you also needed to make sure that when they were um, throwing their absolute best at you that you weren't going to flinch. And that's where he was really good. He was always there on the day. When did you start to have an awareness that you were quite good at this? <laughs> that's a trick question. <laughs> well, you're only as good as your last race, surely. And so sitting here, you don't really feel all that good. And um, when you think about, uh, I truly... They, the older I've gotten, in all seriousness, that statement takes a lot more meaning because you kind of get to a certain spot. And, you know, it's probably what, you know, back to Kenny, what he kind of, as he evolved his career uh, through the J24 class and then out of the J24 class and taking on new challenges, he kind of got to a point where it was always assumed he was going to win. And so by changing, you know, something that we've instilled in ourselves in the past really 10 years of racing by kind of changing that mentality of, you know, you really truly are only as good as your last race, then, then you're always working for perfection. And it always gives you something to grow upon for the next time you go out on the water. In the intro, I, I list some of your achievements in the sport. I mean, it's a crazy long list of championship wins in all kinds of boats. Couple things missing though. <laughs> How could you do that? I mean, just think back. Step from boat to boat, team to team, and deliver to win. What did Terry Hutchinson bring to a boat? Um, yeah. I think when I, when I reflect back on a lot of those teams and a lot of, um, a lot of the um, success and failures, I mean, there was always a level of hard work and discipline um, that has developed over the years. Um, you know, there was a lot of losing inside of that. And the thing that ends up happening when you get knocked around enough is that, you know, you have to um, have the ability to get up and look at the mistakes and keep, you know, as, as cliche as it sounds, you have to, or you don't, you know, you don't progress. And, um, and so one of the things that we 
always kind of tried to pride ourselves on regardless of who we worked for at the time or what team we were with was just a higher level of professionalism. And, um, and you know, there were, <clears throat> personally, I've been incredibly fortunate to work for Jim Richardson and John Kilroy and Doug DeVos and Hap Fouth and, you know, these group of owners that always provided everything um, that you needed to win. And in return, you needed to provide them the same level of professionalism and expectations. So if they're going to make the investment, you have to bring to the table uh, what they're expecting. And it's not like it was ever communicated, I need you to do this, 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 and this. It's just expected. And it took a while to understand that, that you know, working hard for them, being honest, you know, always, you know, taking the position of protecting, you know, your owner's best interest and, and representing them well in any of the competitions that you're doing. And there were times certainly with Jim and the Barking Mad where I probably, I know I let us down um, and how he handled certain situations, but he was always committed to the longer, um, the end game of, and developing uh, his teams that, that he allowed it all to happen. And, uh, you know, incredibly lucky to have gone through and worked for some of these guys because, you know, they're, they're legends in their own right. If you win, then, you know, you're carrying the legend of Dennis Conner and the Stars and Stripes. And if you don't win, then it's equally as painful. It wasn't until I got into Team New Zealand that I realized how we were never, ever going to compete at Stars and Stripes. Well, all that success got you noticed. And in 2000, you were on America One as mm. main chief trimmer with Paul Kerr, yeah. who was skipper and CEO. I mean, your first America's Cup experience. How did all that come about? And how excited were you to, yeah. to be part of it all? Ah, well, you get goosebumps. I do sitting here thinking about that because I was in, um, in 1998, we were in San Francisco at the J24 Worlds. And Paul had just come off of winning the Whitbread. And there was a lot of discussions about uh, America One getting, go getting going. And I had done some racing um, with John in the Corral 45s and, you know, getting to know him. and John Kostecki. Yeah. And getting to know him and, and um, developing a relationship there with the intention of wanting to be part of the America One team. And at the J24 Worlds, um, that we ended up winning, I met with, with uh, Paul and with um, Bob Billingham um, at John's recommendation and joined America One, um, which was, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I, you couldn't be any luckier because Paul at the time was at the top of his game. John as always, is always at the top of his, his game, regardless of what he's doing. And it was an incredible opportunity to come in and race with really, really uh, good, experienced people. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that was probably one of the best things about it because I ended up trimming the main. I wanted to be more of a strategist or, or a secondary helmsman um, in developing the boats. But, uh, and so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really a great main trimmer. Sean Clarkson helped as much as everybody else did on the boat. You know, it's like trim it to the mark, Terry. That way you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be good. But what, what that, it definitely taught at the time, and it's, this is more of a hindsight comment, but what it taught me was the, the importance of the entire team, the importance of, um, of learning all the different positions on the boat, because in essence that helps, you know, when you're making decisions to, push it into a top mark or a bottom mark or any given situation, understanding what everybody has to do in that choreography. I mean, those boats were, were boat handling, uh, uh, boat handling dependent. And as the racing got better and better, uh, you know, the team that could push it the hardest would inevitably come out uh, winning a lot of the situations. And so that was one of the things that I definitely took out of that experience and then hanging around and absorbing um, the process that we had there um, and seeing how Paul and John and really everybody operated, it was awesome. Yeah, what did you learn from Paul? How did he operate? Um, I think probably 
and I didn't know it at the time. I think what I probably learned the most from Paul was there were certain things that just didn't matter. And he was really good at ignoring those things. Um, he was really good at the, um, at sailing the boat. Um, he did a very good job of striking the balance of steering the boat and running the program and, and, um, handing off other responsibilities to John and to, and to Bruce Nelson and to Hookie who was designed, you know, kind of a lot of those things he did a really good job at. Um, he had, he's a really smart guy. And so he always has the ability to, to manage, um, a lot of things well. And I think that's that, um, as I've evolved out of that, you know, he's really good at that. And there's certain things I'm not good at. And, and, you know, having seen what he was really good at, and then, you know, as you develop your game and you race against people, uh, you, you know, you learn strengths and weaknesses about them and, but also about yourself. And I think that's probably in retrospect, one of the things that I took out of it, you know, that was, and at the time he was one of the few guys that had as much, um, time in the boat that he had in that class of boat. And that also made him really good. You were back again in 2003 here in Auckland. Mm -hmm. Tactician calling the shots yeah. with Dennis Connor, Stars and Stripes. Now, Terry, we love a good Dennis story <laughs> on the podcast. What do you remember of Dennis at that time? And, and how would you describe his leadership style? Um, well, there are certain things working for Dennis. I mean, so, you know, you hear the 1983, you know, watching him uh, lose. And then as a fan watching him win in 1987, which was just awesome. So then you fast forward to, I think it was, it would have been the spring of 2001. I was out in San Diego doing a one design 35 regatta with Steve and Fred Howe. And I had been doing some sailing with Kenny and, and he connected me to Dennis. Um, and so I went to, Dennis's house in San Diego. Dennis actually came out on the water and watched this race all weekend. And then I went to his house for dinner and he cooked this incredible chicken curry. Um, and it was him and Daintree and, and we had this wonderful dinner. But I got off the boat and I went to his house and when I walk into his house, he's got this replica of the America's Cup. And I was like... Like you do. Yeah, as you would. <laughs> yeah. um, but I went in and I took a shower and I had to call uh, shell from the bathroom and say, you're not going to believe this. I'm in Dennis Connor's house here. This is the coolest thing going. And that's really probably describes it because it was, um, to be considered to be part of his team, having watched everything that he achieved, um, was really just an unbelievable, um, compliment, I think. And I know Tom, um, blessed it and Kenny blessed it. And so again, you know, having the respect of your peers to be given that opportunity, it's, it's unfortunate that we didn't go further in the competition because I think I actually, I think the, the halls that we had were really good. There were things that we were limited by, um, budget wise. And, you know, that was the kind of the beginning of the, of the billionaires that had gotten into the game. And so the, the arms race was really getting escalated there. And as I later learned when I joined Team New Zealand, we were always going to be up against it with that team because it just was going to be resource strapped. Um, and yet, you know, I can remember going to this house and as if it was yesterday because it was just so cool. And, you know, you, you could just sit and listen to his, his um, stories about all those races. And he's got an incredibly sharp mind um, through this experience here at American Magic in the last six months. You know, I re I've received emails and notes from him and they always end with of all the all the emails that I've re received. Um, these are the most appreciated because there's somebody who, you know, has achieved uh, greatness in the sport and to have him take the time to email me it was just yeah I mean that's I don't know you still have to pinch yourself those debriefs here in 2003 with Dennis Connor yeah. must, must have been pretty intense Tenny, Kenny tells the story of Connor having not gone to any of the press conferences deciding to go to the press conference and 
blames himself for the lost races, then qualifies it by saying he was in the wrong because he'd clearly hired a boatload of idiots. I mean, how intense were those days sailing for Dennis? Yeah, I don't, I, to be honest, I don't remember it. Like I never tuned into any of that because I was one layer removed from it. I can see that being incredibly uh, sore for Kenny because, you know, as I said earlier, I think Kenny's an incredible sailor. And later when we were done with the Stars and Stripes in that same year, we went and won the Congressional Cup and then he went and caned everybody at the actual 22 Worlds to prove something. And, and, you know, so it's, I think at that point it's hard um, you know, filling those shoes is a really difficult thing. And, you know, Dennis's um, scorecard in the America's Cup is unmatched. And so, you know, that was always going to be a hard thing to, to uh, harder than most, because either if you win, then, you know, you're carrying the legend of Dennis Conner and the Stars and Stripes. And if you don't win, then, you know, then it's, it's equally as painful. In the end, DC's campaign, as you say, was, was short of budget and couldn't compete with the well-funded challengers yeah. of Oracle and, and Alinghi by then. But for the 2007 Cup in Valencia, you would wear the black shirt of yeah. New Zealand, yeah. tactician for Dean Barker. I mean, how did that happen? There's not many foreigners get into that camp. No. How did that happen? I actually reached out to, um, it was truly a by chance email. Um, and it was the spring of 2004. Uh, and I, I just wrote, I wrote Daltz after he was announced as the, um, as the new managing director of Team New Zealand. I wrote him an email and, and, um, before I wrote the email, I asked Tom if I could use him as a reference and I asked Dennis if I could use him as a reference. And, um, it was it was about 10 days prior to the Congressional Cup. And he said, yeah, I'd love to meet you. Um, they had just gone through a, a bit of a change because I think Kostecki, um, John had been hired and then he, you know, Oracle came to him. And so something had happened there that he wasn't gonna, you know, so they were a little bit in limbo as well. And he said, why don't you come to New Zealand? I said, okay, well, I'm doing, doing the Congressional Cup in Long Beach that we lost to Ed Baird in the final painful as that was uh, <laughs> um he said why don't you come after that and i literally i flew down here for a day and i met with him and with kevin shoebridge and we left with a handshake and it was all pretty simple um you know the neat thing about that was you know like what i said earlier you know it wasn't until I got into Team New Zealand that I realized how we were never, ever going to compete at Stars and Stripes because of this massive infrastructure and the, the IP that the design team had and the experience that they had um, as a sailing team with the boat. You know, and each, each one of these programs kind of hardens you in a different way. And straight away, um, we went and did a regatta in Valencia that we won. It was kind of the second act. I missed the first act because in Marseille because of the Far 40 Worlds. And so I stepped on in the, at the second act and, and we won the match racing. And I think we won the fleet racing. I'm not sure we actually fleet raced there, but I know we won the match racing. And, you know, straight away you could just see, wow, this is, this is an incredible, not only incredible team, but an incredible sailing team that has everything that we need. We just need to be kind of guided in the right direction. And Daltz was really good um, in that regard. Um, Rod Davis was really good in that regard. And yet we were all somewhat new together. I mean, that's the other, you know, that's the other thing that was, um, you know, the, the cycles of these programs, you know, that was new leadership as well. But we all walked into, well, we all, myself and Daltz and Shub and, you know, some of the people that hadn't been there in 2003, we walked into a, a reasonably fine-tuned machine. And so 
this is hindsight. I didn't know it at the time. I was like, well, <laughs> I'm excited to go sailing and this is really cool. This is Team New Zealand. So this is really cool. Um, and yeah, and that's how it started. And we moved down to December of 2004. We moved down here and, and, and started, you know, integrating and being part of that team. You made the match. Yeah. Yeah, you challenged yeah. the mighty Alinghi. The mighty Alinghi, yep. I mean, my memory of it was that it was it was pretty closely fought. Yeah. So the the average race win in that regatta was 19 seconds. And we led, we lost 5-2, and we led five of the seven races at the first top mark and didn't win the regatta, which is just brutal because, you know, so much emphasis in that program in particular um, statistically leading up to that regatta, the boat that had won the first cross, you know, from 1992 to 2003, the boat that won the first cross won like 96% of the races. So we put a lot of emphasis in um, our starting, um, a lot of emphasis in, you know, racing the boat well. And as the, as the um, racing developed, the one thing that did stand out was uh, that team in particular, we, we bloodied ourselves on the match racing circuit. We bloodied ourselves in the TP 52. Um, we bloodied ourselves just learning our relationships, you know, and, and the ins and outs of those, uh, things that allowed for a really well-oiled machine. Um, but we lost to the faster boat and that's, that is definitely the America's cup. And that's, what's going to be exciting to see next week. Uh, one team is reasonably bloodied. Uh, one team's not, but the faster boat's going to win the regatta. And in that 2007 match, um, you know, straight away, you knew that we were up against it because the first race, we won the, the right-hand side, the weather end with like 10 degrees of weather end bias and came off the line in a really strong spot. And we were going quite a bit over target and we were just surviving. Like it wasn't, everything was in our favor and we were only holding even and you thought, Phew, this is going to be a long regatta if it stays like this. And, um, we went out, uh, we were tied two two and we had a lay day and then we went out the next day. Um, and we led at the top mark and broke a spinnaker down the run and, uh, had a mistake in the, in the boat handling. And, you know, so when you think about pivotal times in a regatta, that was, that was a big race, you know, winning that race or at least capitalizing on, on that, you know, continually asking that question, um, was, was a big one. So we lose that race and then the next race. So race, uh, six, we go out and, um, again, we lead at the top mark, lead to the bottom, take the right hand gate going up wind, big left shift, you know, like everything is just in your in your favor and there they are still just you know at the at the next time that we the next exchange going up to second beat uh we only got a lee bow on them and then they passed us and we finished you know a couple boat links behind them and then the last race which was an awesome race and we had the penalty to do it to finish um they sailed a really good race we sailed a really good race and probably the only flaw was doing the penalty a, a length too far away from the line and we lose by a second. <laughs> so, but that we still would have lost because they were faster. So it was just a delaying the inevitable. <laughs> Not that I remember these things, sure. <laughs> by now, Terry, Quantum Racing, Doug DeVos's TP52 yep. team, with you in charge, was about to begin its incredible winning mm. streak. Talk to me about that campaign and your relationship with Doug. Yeah, well, that's um, the relationship uh, started actually this summer after the 32nd match where I went sailing with Doug um, on the Windquest on his, on his boat. And the quantum racing evolved out of that. And it was a partnership between Doug and Fred Howe, really, the first season. And, um, you know, the how that came about was, you know, really Ed Reynolds, you know, his brain child of, of how to continue to promote quantum and to, you know, this great circuit happening at the Med Cup in Europe was a really good platform to demonstrate, um, not only the quality of the, of the quantum product, but the quality of the design and the quality of the people. And, 
so quantum racing was born out of that and and the first season uh we started out a bit slow and we found our stride in the second half of the year and kind of um yeah ended up winning the med cup and won the world championship in lanzarote uh which was you know just incredible um opportunity and i think as you said you know that's where the relationship with doug started um and you know really has continued to flourish you know the the opportunity that he and Hap and, and Roger and the New York Yacht Club gave us here is is um yeah you really don't have any words of thanks because you know um you know what they did for us all but they're very competitive guys um they're very um you know they're very um patriotic to our country and to what you know really we represent culturally and and you know that that's something that you get when you come out of team new zealand and you see the the working for a higher purpose um not just for yourself you know that's something that doug definitely teaches and instills in all of us but it's not like it's not like he you know today's lesson is you know being a good guy <laughs> uh it's not you know it's not exact it's not ex at all how it goes it's how he how he conducts himself how he uh and how we've evolved our relationship and our friendship um you know there's certain people that when i look back on in life that you always want to be a better person because of you know Doug's one of them you know because he just carries himself in that way and you know eternally grateful for not only his friendship but for that type of leadership because it's not it's just it's just a good reminder to aspire to be something better you've dominated the class you know for a decade five times world champion mm. six times series champions mm. i mean a formidable outfit why do you think looking back has the team been so good for so long what, what's the secret harry uh fast boat you know at, at marcelino botin's hands um really good people committed people um great leadership ashore from ed um you know allowing it all to happen in the manner that it does you know it's a combination of really good people uh consistent leadership and a really good boat and inevitably when one of those pieces is missing you know somebody else wins it's not that easy to achieve all those things at the same time. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, and that's the, um, I, again, I, we just, we started it with, you know, the naive, naiveness of myself with American magic. And it's a hindsight comment because I think we have a lot of really good things here, but you know, as you learn in debrief, you come up against a lot of challenges that the team faced and in the TP 52, um, we faced a lot of challenges too. Um, you know, we're always working to, um, represent the quantum brand, uh, to the standard that they expect. Um, you know, you have other people that don't want you to win and the competition itself, the competitors are really, really good. And so you have to be smart with how you prepare. And, um, but what's awesome in particular is once you get into the groove of the racing and you get into the groove of those boats um you know you 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 leave the dock every day with a certain expectation and and it doesn't mean you always achieve that but when you come back you know where that team has always been really good is being really critical and then going back out the next day and trying to prove uh what you had learned that you did poorly the day before and take it to the next day and then go out and have a good day. By 2011, Oracle were defending the cup and Russell Coates wanted something new, fresh, to engage, as he called it at the time, the Facebook generation. The boats would be giant multi-hulls. The newly formed America's Cup team, Artemis, had hired Paul Kayard as CEO and he wanted you. How did you feel going into that campaign? Um, how I felt was, you know, I felt like we'd done a really good job with the 
quantum racing and you know we we had done um a lot of personal development as a helmsman because i had been a tactician and you know so you know you're learning a, again another part of the game which is exciting having started as a helmsman ended up being a tactician and then coming back to the helming you know it reinvigorates you to go to work every day and i was i was and and am you know continually thankful for the opportunity that torbian gave to us and for the opportunity to, to work with paul um you know i was always proud of the fact that we won the the match racing side of the world series in the ac45 and you know obviously we know that tragedy that that happened there and and um you know it was it was equally as hard because you always feel a responsibility to to the whole thing even though you know you're not there completely and so yeah you know, those boats themselves were incredible pieces of equipment um and yet when you compare it to an ac-75 i know the ac-75 would cane one of those boats around the race course <laughs> so it's equally as incredible we filmed you yeah. behind the scenes for a week at, at the extreme yeah. sailing series in istanbul as, as we've mentioned uh, getting some multi-hull race practice, yeah. the location of the shaving incident. Yes. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget how different, Terry, you were on the water, and I hadn't seen that before. I mean, pumped. How would you describe Terry Hutchinson, the competitor? Yeah, there's something about the competition that gets the adrenaline going and gets the, uh, the absolute, sometimes it gets the absolute best and sometimes it gets the absolute worst out of you. And um, the thing that was really uh, different with the multi-hauls is um, the pace in which things happened. Um, you know, I, I was not very experienced at that. And so that, that inherently got the, um, the juices flowing that much more. And, and the Extreme 40 racing was like the perfect blend because the boats were fast, but it was also very much in my wheelhouse where it was short course you know, high emphasis on getting good starts and boat positioning and everything that you learn through four years of college sailing. It was like this perfect blend, um, you know, lots of racing over the series. And so you, you always battled for consistency in those regattas. I also remember, Terry, that dramatic last race at that event. I mean, we were there all week yeah. filming you and we could not have scripted it better. Yeah. Can you remember that moment? I do. I do. You know, the last races in those regattas were double points races. And um, if Team New Zealand won the race, um, we had to finish one place behind them with the double point scoring. And uh, we went around the last top mark and Ian in the GAC boat was right in front of us. And he went buggering off to a different mark and we deployed and sailed downwind and jived around another mark and then, you know, reached into the finish much to uh, the chagrin of Mr. Barker. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have to say that that was a bit of a jag. Um, it was probably the, the right outcome considering we had sailed, we'd sailed pretty well, but, you know, it highlighted the importance of consistency in those regattas because we had some great days and then we had some equally awful days. And uh, that entire circuit was a really fun uh, experience. You know, it's too bad that it's not in existence in the same caliber that it was because it was quite the show. Well, it helped us out. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> having followed you for the week, it yeah. was great to get a, a yeah, dramatic Yeah, at least we got the good result. <laughs> um, during that time, we also filmed with you north of Valencia, mm. the Artemis training yeah. place. And I remember we, we raced against each other in the AC45s, that, that little made for telling. Yeah. Little race. You won, surely. Yeah, I was sailed with Santi Lang. I had yeah. some help. But, and of course, you know, we won. And I remember that, I mean, you were really not happy, Terry. But I mean, looking back, I got the feeling that it wasn't, it wasn't perhaps me you were frustrated with, that, that perhaps it was quite a hard time for you then. Yeah, that's, um, that whole, again, it's a little bit of hindsight. Um, you know, the, the things that not a lot of people see with the America's Cup is the impact that uh, it has on families. And, you know, basically Shell and Elias and Catherine and Aiden had uprooted their lives 
and, ba- and we moved to Spain for a year. And you came, you spent a morning with us, and we had some great, um, we have some great memories of being there. But in particular, that that time was really hard on Aiden. And you know, you you get this this I don't know if it's a sense of guilt or frustration because you always want what's better for your kids. And I could see I could see the impact that it was having negatively on them. Um, we were also, though, I mean, you mentioned Santi. I mean, there were people there that we were incredibly fortunate to work with, and Santi was one of them. And, you know, the guy is, continues to be a legend. Um, and I think prior or during your time there, you know, we were preparing for Venice um, in the AC-45, Naples and Venice. And um, we had a, a reasonably good regatta in Naples in the match racing and we didn't have um, some of the fleet racing results. While we had a good last day, we capsized in one of the races and did a lot of damage to the boat. Um, but, you know, when you get outside of your comfort level, um, that's where you find the things the most challenging and how you react to that. I mean, what I was really proud of with that is that, you know, we were always under a lot of scrutiny, rightfully so. Um, and the fact that we matched race really well, I was really, you know, that was, that was, um, reassuring to the confidence. And then there's the family side of it, which is, you know, like I said, I mean, that was really, really hard, um, particularly on the youngest because he was flourishing at home and he was loving the sailing and, you know, so many things and, you know, for no fault of his own, he gets yanked out of his environment and it was hard. Um, and so, you know, I think when I look at it and think about that, you know, we're all incredibly fortunate and, and grateful, much in the same way that we have from the supporters that we have. But, you know, the families truly are the unsung heroes in all this because they're, they're as committed, if not more committed, to what we're doing. Um, and, you know, they feel, they feel the sting of every loss and they feel the the um the celebration of every win as well and that's not you know again that's a that's a looking that's learning and looking at the past that you realize all that because to be successful i think we all have to be really reasonably self-absorbed at what we're doing to make sure that we're giving 110 percent and uh and yet their 110 percent is being there every day when the boat goes out and when the boat comes back in and and they're holding up the signs of support and and celebrating the success and and crying with the failures i remember thinking that when we filmed we filmed with you it was mm. saturday morning breakfast yeah. probably quite a rare yeah. moment you know at this all american family yeah blueberry pancake yeah that's right the kids the, the kids sitting around the table telling me how competitive you were at monopoly yeah i'll never forget that yeah and i i do remember thinking also you know how how weird it is for them here mm. they are relocated to yeah some really strange and country going to a spanish school and and being uh literally thrown into uh an environment that is so far out of their comfort zone that that um that it's hard. The beauty of that though, is, you know, how much of our lives do we spend outside of our comfort zone? And, and so if they take any way, anything away from it, it's the fact that, you know, more often than not, we are living outside of our comfort zones, be it in competition or in work or whatever it is at the time that we're doing. And so I'd like to think that, you know, in that regard, you know, they're better prepared for life. Stories from the very candid Terry Hutchinson. Terry, thank you. I hope you all enjoyed hearing about Terry's early career. In part two, Terry relives his AC36 journey. It was a cup full of drama, intense. It's really worth a listen. It's a fascinating insight into the world of Terry's America's Cup team, American Magic. As always, we love to hear from you. So please reach out, let us know what you think, like and subscribe on whatever platform you found us on. And please do consider visiting buymeacoffee.com 
forward slash sailing podcast. If you're enjoying what we do here on the pod, we really strive to bring you a high quality listen. I hope you think it's worth supporting. We love having you along. As always, the podcast is produced by Tim at Vertigo Films. So a big thanks to him and also to the media team at American Magic, Will Rickardson and his team. They're a great bunch to work with. Settle down for the roller coaster ride in part two with Terry Hutchinson. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. Standing by. Out.